Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. Today, we are very pleased to have with us Rabbi Yaakov Reinman. Rabbi Reinman is an accomplished, noted writer, historian, and scholar. Among his works is Shufra Vishtara, a groundbreaking study of Talmudic contractual law. Rabbi Reinman is also the author of the extremely popular historical novels, the Strasbourg series, Strasbourg saga series, written under his pen name, Avner Gold. And today we will be discussing Rabbi Reinman's highly important work, A Guide to the Guide, written together with Rabbi Yosef Kohn. A Guide, as we will see, opens up Maimonides, the Rambam's masterpiece, the Mora Nuhuchim, a guide for the perplexed. And um, as you can see here, I ordered the book on Amazon, delivered free to the house, and urge all of our listeners and viewers to order and read this uh, exceptional work. Rabbi Ryman, once again, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Just a little bit about your background and how you became interested in Guide for the Perplexed. Well, I am um, a lifelong yeshiva student. I learned at BMG. I came here over 50 years ago. And uh, that's what I do. I learn. I learn mostly Talmud. And I'm a very big devotee of the Rambam. I, uh, the, the, I would say the golden grail, I don't know if that's like a non-Jewish term, of Talmudic scholarship is to resolve uh, the apparent contradiction in the Rambam. The Rambam has a work called Mishnah Torah, which is uh, a codification of the Talmud. The Talmud is full of arguments and debates and discussions, and uh, more often than not, there is no conclusion reached. There is no ruling in the Talmud. And the different uh, uh, scholars of the of the Rishonim, of the one in the beginning of the last millennium, uh, they have different rulings. Some some um, will rule according to one sage, some according to the other sage, some will split it. And the Rambam's rulings are extremely important. He was the first one that codified the, the laws of the Talmud and, uh, and um, is the basis for the Shulchan Aruch. But very often, the Rambam will have some mystifying contradictions where he will where the Talmud seems to say that one thing is dependent on the other, and the Rambam will, will rule in one place this way, and one place that way, and sort of ignore the interdependence. And that is like, uh, when I come across, and very often, very often, and when I come across these, I get very excited, because I know that there is a solution and the solution will shed a completely different light on the on that discussion in the Talmud. The, the, the Rambam apparently saw it in a different way, and that will explain the apparent contradiction. This is like, in the yeshiva world, this is the ultimate. If you can resolve 
that some of these have been, you know, have been discussed by 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 in the, in the literature and are left unresolved. And to me, that is the challenge. And I have to say that I've never come across, I haven't seen all of them, but the ones that I've come across, I've never cr- come across one that I couldn't resolve, but it takes a tremendous amount of work and effort and concentration. And, uh, you know, Baruch Hashem, you know, you know, usually I am successful in this. So I'm, I'm a big devotee of the Rambam. The Rambam also, I, I am not that much, at least until the last 15, 20 years, I wasn't that much into the ideological side of uh, Talmudic Judaism. I was more into the halachic, the legal side, which is um, which is extremely sophisticated. The philosophy of law. That's what I'm interested in, the philosophy of law. The philosophy of Judaism, you know, I'm not that, you know, I'm not that well-read in all the works, but the Rambam always fascinated me. I wanted to read the guide, the Boren Nevuchim, the guide to the perplexed. The problem was that every time I tried to read, I've made it several attempts, I, uh, I couldn't get into it. It was so dense, so opaque, so complicated in its style, and it's, I, just, I just found it extremely difficult to get into it. And I wanted to, but, you know, I'm not going to make that. But, uh, you know, a few years ago, about six years ago, I met uh, my co-author, who had been through it once, and was fairly familiar with it, and we decided to learn it together. From the beginning, to just go through the whole guide, and it was much easier because he was he was um, very helpful. You know, he led me, and he's a brilliant man, and he has a tremendous amount of things to say. So we had we we learned for about four hours a week, and and I wrote what we came up with. And basically, my book, our book, is a summary of every single chapter. There are 173 chapters in the guide. And, uh, and uh, what, what we did, we summarized every single chapter in, in I mean, I wrote it in uh, modern contemporary English, you know, just the, the essence of every chapter, the main points. It's not the entire guide, but the main points that if somebody wants to familiarize, familiarize himself with the guide, he could read our book and he will know what the guide is about. Now, if certain chapters um, capture his attention and, uh, and he wants to really get into, you know, get into all the, all, all the weeds and really get all, everything, then you can go back to one of the translations and it will be much easier just to go through them once you know what the Rambam is talking about. So you pick your points where you want. Maybe you want to go through the whole book. It's also, I mean, it's great. But, but this is what we did. Basically, we opened up the Rambam to intelligent readers. It's not, um, uh, I would say, maybe it's almost a page turner, but not quite. And uh, you have to be a motivated, intelligent reader. But if you are, then it's then you can read it, and you're not going to stumble and scratch your head and try to figure out what it is. 
it is it is well explained. Now, besides that, we also did footnotes. And the footnotes, we put the footnotes, we weren't just trying to read it and understand what he's saying, but also to learn it the way we would learn something in the Talmud, to analyze it, to probe, to question, to, to, to find out what is, what is he saying. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. <clears throat> Before you give the examples, just a, a quick question. Yeah, sure. Why did Maimonides the Rambam write Guide for the Perplexed? And for whom did he write this important book? So the Rambam wrote the book um, at, the, at the end of the uh, 12th century. And at that time, uh, the Rambam lived in a uh, in Muslim Arabic society, and the Arabs, uh, you know, when they conquered, they didn't destroy. They like um, they came across the works of the ancient Greeks, so they took them and they treasured them, and they understood that these were things of great value. And they translated them into Arabic, and they introduced them to the public. So Greek philosophy was was quite popular in uh, Muslim society at that time, and there were also the uh, Muslim philosophers called the Mutakalamim, who had a different approach. And uh, and the the fear was that younger people who are intellectually curious, would start reading Greek philosophy, maybe also Muslim philosophy. I think mainly he was worried about Greek philosophy. He doesn't really um, give much respect to the Muslim philosophers. But, and he wanted to show that Judaism was very compatible with the rational philosophy. This is what he wanted to do. In other words, you don't have to choose between being rational and being Jewish. You could be both. This is why he wrote that book. Was there, at the time of the Rambam, Maimonides, or right afterwards, opposition to the guide? And well, yeah, there was. Opposition to the guide. There was. Um, there was opposition to everything the Rambam wrote. There was opposition to the Mishnah Torah, a lot of opposition to that. Um, you know, some people felt that uh, there were all kinds of problems. He didn't quote sources. Um, you know, he that people were afraid that 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 uh, people would stop learning the Talmud. All you have to do is read the Mishnah Torah. Um, I guess it impacted on the livelihood of some rabbis because uh, you know people can get these answers. More easily, instead of uh, going to the rabbi and paying him his fees, and uh, and so so, I guess there were many different reasons for it. So there was opposition to it, but once it came out, it died down. But Rambam became a um, controversial figure. Well, it's hard to know. It's hard to to, to know if if that latent opposition was behind the. Opposition to the guide, how can we know? It's just all speculation. But when the guide came out, there was a lot of opposition to it. 
they felt that uh, that that it opened the door to uh, to Greek philosophy, and people would turn away from Judaism. It was um, it over rationalized Judaism. All kinds of different arguments, and and um, and actually in in like twelve thirty three, this was posthumously. The, the 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 Rambam's books were burned in Paris by Dominican monks, which is but that was like a big shock when that happened, and I think that sort of put an end to the controversy because Rambam was was the greatest scholar of his generation he, by far. He was towered above everybody else, and that they should burn his books was like, you know, it's just you know like a splash of cold water. This can't be. So the, the controversy died down, and uh, the guide is accepted, is accepted as one of the, the pillars of Jewish thought. Is it uh, as popular as as uh, uh, other books like Misalat uh, Yisharim or Chovat Al Vavot? Not. There are two reasons for that. One is because it's not readable. You know, it was it was written in Arabic. Um, see, I think that the Arabic style, at least according to what I've read, I, I can't say, you know, if I would live in Israel, I would learn Arabic. But since I live in New Jersey, Arabic, uh, Spanish is what I'd be, not Arabic. So, so, but the way of what I read, I understand that, um, the, the Muslim style of writing, I don't know, at least in that time, the medieval, but maybe, maybe even now, it's not like what we're, we're used to, a linear Germanic style. Just a point, 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 that's right. But the, 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 the Muslim style was like a spiral. You know, you go around and come back to the point, mm-hmm. and you add another layer, and you go a very elaborate, and, you know, stylized, style and it seems to me that the guide is written in that style which is hard to read and uh, considering that uh, the translations are all um, trying to be very faithful to the original and keeping the syntax and and instead of uh, um, like taking a, a long sentence and rearranging the syntax and breaking it up into different sentences. So translations that try to be really faithful are, are stiff. So you have all these different problems and the topic is hard. It's not, it's not simple like somebody else's form. It gets very into the complexities of philosophy. So, so it's not as popular, but it's certainly like the Ramban will constantly, um, you know, he always quotes the Mashakos of Arab, the Sefer Amore, and the Sefer Amore. He'll argue, of course. Well, that's that's what we do, you know. We argue, we fight, but the respect and the that uh, that Rishonim uh, and uh, and sages of all generations have for the guide is tremendous. But um, as far as the public is concerned. No, it's it's. I hope this will make it more popular. I really hope. Uh, I can't say this is one of the hardest things I've done.
but it's probably one of the most uh, most important because you know it makes it makes him available. It makes him, and, and he says some incredibly wonderful things that are um, extremely important. Who were the uh, you had alluded to this before? Who were the the two kalim, and why does the Rambam deal with their propositions? Um, they they were there were two schools: the Asharia, the Muzail. I think I haven't read my book in a while. Muzail, <laughs> something like that. There were two schools. They were Muslim philosophers. They 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 were trying to prove creation, but the Rambam does not does not approve of their their um, their scholarship. Doesn't think that they're solid. And very often he mocks them, but these were, you know, these were also available to the public. So you had the Greeks, you had the Muslims, and the Rambam wanted to find the past of of Jewish, the Jewish past, which would be very solid intellectually and be able to hold its own against them. So, the, but the Rambam doesn't devote so much time to them. He does maybe like, I don't know, five or ten chapters. And he really, um, um, he, he doesn't like them. He thinks that they are poor scholars. Although, although one thing they say is um, that everything, there is no motion. They don't believe in motion. Nothing moves. It's here and then God recreates it the next place and recreates it in the next place and the next place. So it never really moves. That's one of the things that they say. And interestingly enough, um, they like shades of uh, quantum physics here. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know, but, you know, when we were reading this, we said, this is quantum. Not that we understand quantum. I don't think anybody understands quantum. But anyway. Is, is there a unique way that the guide classifies um, categories of the commandments? Um, I don't know. Unique means as, as opposed to... Uh, to well, how, how does the guide classify commandments? There's a whole... Discussion. Just, just by groups, by logical things that have to do with purity... Things that have to do with uh, nutrition, things that have to do with uh, the, the the temple service, um, you know, relationships, you know, business relationships. He he just does his own his own. Uh, I don't think it's the same as what the Rambam has uh, to say for our mitzvahs, the Book of Mitzvahs. Over there, he has, uh, you know, he he, he uh, arranges them in his own way, different from the Chinuch or others, but this is just I, mean, I don't think it really follows that I don't think it's especially significant, he just felt that this was the most organized way of presenting it What are the areas that one should focus on, the critical areas in the guide, in the Mora Nevuchim 
you know, the, 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 more, the ones that, you know, that are no, not a novice, but as you said, the intelligent reader who really try to understand. Um, well, the first part of the, of, this, of the guide is about anthropomorphisms, where the Torah is full of anthropomorphisms. And if people have no problem with that, if people understand that uh, very clearly, that uh, all of these are metaphors, that God is incorporeal, and uh, then, you know, then, it's interesting to read it, because what, but it's not like something you really need. What he does there is he will take um, take each each uh, anthropomorphism and he'll explain what it signifies, which uh, which of God's actions are represented by that anthropomorphism. And it's interesting. It's, it's interesting where you know how he works with the language. That's interesting. But as far as what's really important, I would say two things. Two things are right. And we don't have to deal with idolatry either, I don't think. You know, not people in the Western world. So I would say two things. One is um, well, this he takes issue with the Mutakalamim on this. The question is, does God have attributes? Does God have distinct attributes? For instance, we have uh, a person. A person is strong. He is intelligent and he is kind. Now, just, I just picked three things. So what do they have to do with each other? Not much. I mean, strength is the power of your musculature and, uh, and the intelligence is your brain power and your kindness is maybe your heart or wherever it is, some part of a different part of the brain, which uh, an emotional the emotional part of the brain, rather than intellectual. These are all separate things. God does not have separate attributes. When God is intelligent, God is wise, God is strong, these are not separate things. He says God has, because if they would be separate things, then God would not be one. That each attribute would be a God, and then God would be composed of many gods, be composed of his wisdom, of his strength, of his uh, anger. I mean, God does not has no emotions. Anger is not an emotion. But now let's not get into anger. It's because it's uh, it sort of models it. But you know, each of these attributes would be uh, a life. God is alive. Is an attribute. God is living. So all these things would be separate gods. And we would have polytheism. And this Rambam is extremely busy about this. He's very focused on this, that the unity of God, that is one. He says God is one simple essence, one simple essence that, that has all these attributes all coming from the same source. They're all one and the same. It was um, just applying this to I mean, the Rambam doesn't say this, but let's say God is merciful, mm-hmm. is midat adin, and midat arachmen. So it's not like there are two parts of God. One part is you know, very strict justice. The other part is kind. But they're all the same. 
it's all coming from one source. Not like sometimes God feels kind and sometimes God feels vengeful. No, it's all the same. God feels that that uh, a certain way of acting with people should be kind and be kind. If it says it's all coming from the same, there are no different parts of God. That is um, that is a very big part. The the middle of the second part of the book is very much involved with this. If God has attributes, that is biggest point of contention with the Metakalamet. The other thing which comes across very strongly in the Rambam, and also in the Shmona Prakim, Rambam's eight chapters, which is his introduction to Pirkei Avos, um, the importance of Yediyah Sasha, to, to get to know God. And it, it comes across that this is, the Rambam says, I'm not going to read it to you, but the Rambam, the fifth parak of the Shonu Prakam says that a person should make all his actions and everything he does for one purpose only, which is to recognize the no God. That is what it's all about. And in the, in the guide, he's always focused very much on the importance of Yediyah Sashem, get to know God. That is, he says one place, he says that that <clears throat> the reason why we have prayer, he says because people need prayer. But if um, if other than that, we would say no. You spend all your time focusing on God, getting to know God. How do you know God? How do you get to know Him? You get to know Him through creation, through the world He created, and you get to know Him through the Torah. Those are the two places where you meet God, and the more you get, and uh, um, I'm not saying a person should spend his entire life getting into uh, bio, microbiochemistry, or, or you know, and then exploring every corner of the world and what kind of uh, flora and fauna they have on Galap- Galapagos or someplace. Uh, but you should have knowledge of the world. How does it work? How do you know God if you just see and you don't really understand what you see? If you know that a tree, I mean, I'm, this is, I'm just saying this. If you know that a tree, look at the tree. Oh, what a nice tree. But if you say, this tree is, is uh, it draws in carbon dioxide from the air. It draws up water from the ground, which is CO2 and H2O, which combine to form starch, C6H10O5. And the reaction is facilitated by a catalyst called uh, chlorophyll, which is the green of the leaves. And, and this is how it works. And you say, incredible. Now you, you know God much more than just looking, oh, God made a tree, how nice. So this is, so there's a certain, you know, where is the balance Everybody should ask his spiritual advisor where the balance is. Maybe for some people it's more here, it's a bit more there. But but you have to and then the Torah. When you learn the Torah, you enter God's mind. Not only do you see what he made, you see his mind, his thoughts. And that is where now if you now if you do that and you learn Torah, again whichever way you want, whichever way works for you, whichever way is best, 
and you look at the world around you and you see it, then you can get to know God and there's no end to the process. Now, this is what he says constantly. So I have an explanation for this, which is, uh, you know, it's not, it's not from the Rambam's works, mm-hmm. but it's what I think. Is that okay? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Okay. It's, it's absolutely. The question is, the question is, why did God create the world? Let me, let me, let me preface this with, an, with another question. The Rambam says that in, in the uh, Mishnah Torah, in the beginning of Hilchitz, the Sodeh Torah, he says that you have a mitzvah to love God. How do you love God? You look around at the world, and niyad ohavu, right away you're going to love God. Why is that? You look at the world, and you love God? I mean, I mean, you admire, but how is that love? How is that? How does that lead to love? Miyad immediately. And say for a mitzvah, he says, a mitzvah, he, he broadens this a little bit. He says there's a mitzvah to love God, and you do this by by getting getting to know his his mitzvahs, his Torah, his pe'ulos, the things that he did, and you look at all these things, the hechrech ohavo. It's inevitable that you will love him. Why is it inevitable that you will love him? Why? So this is a question which I want to resolve. And it'll explain, you know, you'll see all the ramifications. The question is, why did God create the world? Okay, they're different. I'm not going to get into Ramchal. But it's, it's, you have to, why did he do it? It seems as if uh, he wanted to do something, but he was frustrated because he couldn't be made to or you know, why, why exactly? What is the subtext of all that? Why did he create the world? So I think that the explanation for this is from the Gemara and Brachas, enough tests. <clears throat> the Gemara says, there's a Pasuk, ain't Surkelekeinu, there's no rock like our Lord. And, and the Gemara says, in the alternate reading, there's no painter like, like our God, which is, I don't know if that's what the Pasuk means, but certainly the Gemara has a concept that the Gemara wants to present, and the Gemara presents this concept by, by hooking it onto a Pasuk. So it says, there is no painter like God. And Tanchuma, Medrash Tanchuma says, that when a, a human painter makes a painting, he will he will um, uh, um, praise the painting. He will praise the painting. Rembrandt makes a painting, he takes a look at it and says, oh, look what I've done here. Look at my brushwork and my use of color and light and, and foreshortening. And he'll say, that's... Whereas when God makes a painting, the painting praises him. This is what Tanchuma says. So I think this is the key, this Tanchuma, that God is the divine artist. He created this world. This is a tremendous, tremendous canvas, a tableau, and it's God's masterpiece. Is it his only one? I'm sure it's not. I'm sure there's... God is the creator, not because he created the world. He created the world because he is the creator. God is an artist, and artists create. That's what they do. 
writers write, musicians play, artists create. Exactly how does it connect? So the Rambam says, when you start probing, 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 eventually you're going to come to the point where you say, it was the Ratzon Hashem. That's what he wanted. But basically what it is, is that God is a creator and he creates. And this is the world he created. Now he wanted to create a world, the artistic enterprise that he wanted was to create a world which can praise the painter, which is beyond anything that any human painter can even begin to conceive. It is divine to create such a world, to create a world with, where there are creatures in it that have consciousness and intellect and free choice. Because without, he could have done it without free choice. He could have just had creatures that have consciousness and intellect, and he would reveal himself to them, and they would see, here is the painter. But no, he wanted to go even beyond that. Not only will I create creatures with, con- with consciousness and intellect, I will not show myself, and I will allow them to figure me out from what I've done. This is what, the, what God did. And our job as details on this canvas, every single one of us is part of this part of this tableau. Every person in the world ha- is part of it. And, and, the, and every person has the responsibility to make this successful. If the painting does not recognize God, then it will be a failure. But it will, I mean, I don't know, failure, it will still be pretty good but it won't be 100% successful. It'll be 90% or 80% or 95%, but it will not be 100%. Because the design was that it should recognize the painter on its own, and it didn't. So it will be a failure. So the, the, the responsibility of every person in the world, the purpose for which we were created was to make the painting a success to recognize the painter. That is what we are here for. We're not here to have houses. We're not here to, to eat and to drink. We're only, all those are just to keep us, to, to, to support our intellect. We are here to use our intellect to recognize the painter. That is what we are here for. And if we do it, it is a success. If we don't do it, it is not a success. Now, um, is it possible for us to give, does God have everything? God has everything. Is it possible for us to give him a gift that he does not have? Yes. You know what that is? We can give him the success of his artistic enterprise. We can give him the success of his painting, of his masterpiece. Without us, he does not have it because he gave us free choice. So if we exercise that free choice to recognize God, then it's successful. If we don't, then it's not successful. Now, what the Rambam is saying about love, when you look around at the world and you, and you see what God did, and you do it with the proper frame of mind that this is what God wants, he wants us to recognize the painter, and you do that, then you give him something of incredible value, which he doesn't have. What is that? The success of his art. 
the success of his masterpiece. He made this tremendous universe, this incredibly beautiful and complex universe. And if we don't recognize God, then, then it's, not, it's not fully successful. And we know that the ones to whom we give are the ones we love. The more we give, the more we love. I don't want to get into that topic, but that topic is in the Torah. It is universally known. The ones to whom we give, we love. So if we give a gift to God, we will love him. And I think that this is what's behind the Rambam. That all this, all this focus on Yediyah, Hashem, and whatever, whatever, he did it for his honor. He doesn't need our honor. He doesn't have the ego. He doesn't need his ego stroke. No, he wanted you to recognize him. Lechvodo, recognize him, because that will make the Bria successful. Anyway. You, you had mentioned this in terms of you have creation, you have the Torah, and you had um, produced that with prayer, with tefillah. Is tefillah a third component, or the well, well, follow follow one's idea, one's knowledge of God? Well, According to the Rambam, you know, I, I don't know, maybe this will upset people, but listen, people need to pray because they need, they have their own needs and they need to take care of those needs. But prayer, there, there are two parts of prayer. There's the part of prayer where you recognize God. You know, you know, uh, we recognize God as the healer. That is idea. That is the idea. When we recognize that everything is in God's hands in the world, that is the idea. But we are pleading for our needs. Please give me Rafua. Please give me uh, Parnasa. Please do that. When you're asking for, for uh, okay, there's a, okay, I'm not going to get uh, the, you know, <laughs> this tangent. I have one to say about this topic too. But, but Tefillah, you know, just look at it. Superficially, tefillah creates a separation between us and God because there is God and there is us. And we, we want you to, there's two rishiyos. There's, there's us and there's God. And, you know, we'll give you what you want. You give us what we want. And it's not so. It's not, there is no us. There's only God. That's all there are. We are created for, to perform a, a, a mission, an action, which is to use our intellect to recognize God and to uh, maybe, um, you know, help other people recognize, recognize God. We need When Mashiach comes, the world will be filled with the knowledge of God. Now, either that's going to happen because Mashiach, because we will do it on our own, the world will come to that realization, which the whole, all of history is the struggle between, between the concept of Yediyah Hashem and other concepts, idolatry, secular humanism. The, the, there's a battle going on. History is the, is the world is the battleground for, the, for this struggle. So either the struggle will come to a point where, where uh, the world will recognize God, with uh, free choice. Maybe the internet will help. Maybe podcasts like yours will help. I think the internet is like uh, unbelievable. There's so much Torah on the internet, so much 
Kedusha, on the other hand, there's so much Tumma here, more than, you know, it's, it's full of Tumma. So this is a battleground, the internet is a battleground. And maybe at some point that the, the forces of good will overcome the forces of evil and people will recognize God. Great. If it doesn't happen, and when the case comes, the Mashiach comes, then we will recognize God because he will reveal himself to us. And then the whole world will be Malar's there. But that's not what God wants. That's not what he doesn't want. That is not fully successful. That is only partially successful. So this is what this is what life is about. This is what history is about. And it's all it's all about not about us. That's what we have to realize. It's not about us. That's people have a hard time realizing that they figure there's us, I'm here, this and that, and there's God, you know, we have to give him his due, and we have to, you know, we have to, of course, we have obligations to have this, but people do not realize that there is no us. I mean, I'm not being, you know, very, uh, I mean, philosophical rather than, than from, you know? I just, oh, no, that, <laughs> I, I'm just trying to, to I'm not giving you the, the, the Rambam was a philosopher, and he was from. Yeah, from means observant, yeah, but so I'm not giving Muslim, I'm not preaching. I'm just trying to explain what the Rambam's view, and I think the Rambam doesn't mention this Gemara and Brachas, but I think that that's what it's about. That's why everything is Yidiyas Hashem, there's nothing else. There's nothing else. And why? Because that's what the world is about. The world was created to recognize God. Anyway, does the Rambam you, have to stop me. you have to stop me because I no, no, it's okay. Me. No, no, not at all. Not at all. This is no. I'm saying I, I, <laughs> does does the Rambam Maimonides deal with uh, the issue of why bad things happen to good people? Theodicy, Sadik, Viralo, Russia yeah, yeah, well, yeah. dealt with. Well, well, he does, but not in. Um, he he writes a lot about Eov. And he read, but he, he doesn't give any, you know, satisfying, conclusive uh, opinion. It is what it is, you know. Uh, and, I mean, the Rambam, the Rambam says though that that good and evil are the what is good and what is evil. The Rambam does talk about that, okay. and he says anything constructive is good, anything destructive is evil. So we have to believe that. That Tzadik um, Virala, you know, was saying, come to the you're going to see everything's the type I made it. Because somehow, somehow what happens is constructive. Because even though the Rambam, by the way, um, um, believes very much in, in Bechira, and he believes that a person has a choice. Could do whatever he wants. He could put himself in danger. Cannot put himself in danger. So, and uh, you know, this is the Rambam's shita ashgacha protest. But I would just like to add a wrinkle to that: that it doesn't mean like this. Everything that happens is exerim and eshmanai. The Gemara says everything. But but there are two ways that exerim can be given. It could be direct, or it could be by by inaction. That was God is able to, to, God is fully aware of everything that's going on in the world. Something we cannot understand, 
because our minds are not similar to God's mind. So we have limitations. How much can we, how much can, can, can we uh, keep in our attention? But God is aware of everything in the world, everything. And uh, so if some, let's say a deer is running in the forest and a tree falls and a tree, the deer is killed. Did God want that deer to die? What did the poor deer do? No, but on the other hand, it was random. Rabbam says there are randomness. There is randomness in the world. And that tree fell and the deer happened to be there. So the tree hit him. That was a random event. However, if God want, knew that it was happening, it was going to happen, he could have prevented it. He could have had the, uh, the you know, the deer turn. He could have prevented it. And he chose not to because he felt that uh, this situation did not, uh, did not merit divine intervention. So he didn't. So that's Xera. So anything that happens to, to a person, God is aware of it. And did he, did, he, did he say that it should happen? Sometimes yes, sometimes not. But even when not, he allowed it to happen. This is the way I understand it. Uh, any conclusions? Any conclusionary comments? Um, you know, I know this is just a tip of the tip, a little taste, which is what we try to give our um, readers. And anything else uh, about the Rambam? Rambam, the the. I'll tell you a couple of things about the guys. Please, tell you a couple of things about prophecy. Okay, the Rambam talks about prophecy. The Rambam believes that every person who reaches the highest level of uh, intellectual development will have prophecy. Doesn't mean that God will send them a special message. I'm not sure exactly what it means. He says something called uh, the active intellect, which a person reaches a higher level is in tune with it. He will have certain knowledge of, of, of God that other people would not have. But the Rambam says that I mean, these are a couple of things that people take issue with the Rambam. The Rambam says that, um, that if a person sees a malach, an angel, then he is in a vision. People do not see angels in ordinary life. So, so like this, the story of Avram, when the angels came to Avram, the Rambam says that was all a prophecy. It didn't happen in real life. It was a prophecy. And the Ramban is, is annoyed. <laughs> he says, what do you mean? And then he says, when they came to Sodom, the angels, and the and let's say Lot saw, saw them, okay, so maybe Lot was able to have prophecy. But how about the Sodomites? Well, they also saw them. So how could that be if... Uh, you know, if you have to be in a state of prophecy. So, so this is a question, right? So I, I, you know, I wrote a solution to this. That the Rambam says that when Adam was expelled from uh, the Garden of Eden, so there was a revolving flaming sword that was placed at the, at the entrance to make sure that uh, nobody goes in. The Rambam says, that there was no revolving flaming sword. There was an angel there. And 
and uh, if anybody would come, the angel would project that image into the mind of the person or into the mind of even an animal. Could be that, that they would see. That's not prophecy. The angel is able to project an image into into people or creatures. So if they would see this flaming sword, they would run away, even though it's not there. That's what the Rambam says. So I think that when the angels came to Saddam, the angels projected an image of them of themselves as people into the minds of the Sodomite, similarly to that revolving flaming sword. And um, another, uh, you have a couple more minutes? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. The Rambam says that, uh, again, when a person sees an angel, he is having a vision, having a prophecy. So the Rambam says that the donkey, Bilam's donkey, it was not talk, did not talk to him. It was, it was a prophecy. This is what the Rambam says. The question which everybody immediately asks is that the Mishnah in Avos says that ten things were created um, in twilight, the evening twilight. Uh, one of them is the Piyasan, the mouth of the donkey. So if, if, the, if the donkey didn't really talk, it was just a prophecy. Why did the Why did God have to create the mouth of the donkey and Benashmashes? So there's a Gemara in in Tainus about Chania Magal, the, the the Jewish word Winkle, that um, he he uh, he had a problem with a pasuk uh, that when they come back for the that when they would come back from from Bavel, after 70 years of uh, exile, they would be like uh, like in a dream. So it says, how is it possible that people sleep for 70 years? So the Gemara says, this is what Choni Amagol said. So, the, so, so he fell asleep and he slept for 70 years. And then he woke up and he saw that it was possible. This is you know, basically what the Gemara is saying. So the question is, uh, you know, did he did he not know about metaphors? Did he not know that some everything that's in, I mean, uh, Tilam was another world was Rachakadish, but uh, you know, what's the problem? We were as if we were asleep for seventy years. And the other question is this: so he slept for seventy years. Was that natural or supernatural? Was it something that uh, was like a nace? It was a miracle. That he slept for seven years. If it was, then how did I answer his question? So apparently, it was not. It was not a miracle. It was natural. So what happened was that he went to very deep hibernation. You know, you can have uh, you know a bear will go into hibernation and and his metabolism will slow down mm-hmm. and he'll be able to live like that for like four months and he'll lose some weight. But uh, then he'll then wake up. So Chaniamago went into a very deep hibernation. His metabolism slowed to almost nothing. So he was able to survive like that for 70 years. So, so it really was natural. Now, the Gemara says that when you have a dream, there's no, a dream can, can have all kinds of dvarim vitalim, kind of nonsense in it. 
and and Devon, and so every every wheat has chaff. The dream has some parts that are, are nonsensical, but a prophecy, the Gemara says, cannot have anything like that. Prophecies have to be real. You can't have something which is doesn't make sense. So what he was saying was true that that uh, it's as if we were asleep is is um, just a metaphor. But if it's if it's but it's it's nevua, it's rucha kaidish. So if it was written rucha kaidish, how can you have something which basically makes no sense, mm-hmm. even as a metaphor? I mean, you could have it, you could talk about it, but if it's in Tehillim, how could it be there? So he was shown that this is possible. It's possible for a person to live for said that to sleep to be in a dream world and to sleep for seventy years. Therefore, it can be used as a metaphor, even though it doesn't mean that they slept for 70 years. Nobody thinks, the Gemara is not saying that they slept for 70 years. They lived there, they got married, they died, they had children. But to use as a metaphor, they slept for 70 years, you can use that as a metaphor because it is a remote possibility. So what happens with a donkey talking in a dream, in a, in a, in a prophecy, that would be dofi. That would be something which is like it's an impossible thing. So you can't have an impossible thing in a in a dream, in a, in, a, in a prophecy. So so, but that's what the Mishnah says that the pia Asun was created by Hashem. That it is possible for a donkey to utter a word. It's possible. It can say a word. So if it's possible for the donkey to utter a word, then in the prophecy, you could have a conversation with the donkey. But if it was not possible, you could not have a conversation with a mosquito in a prophecy because mosquitoes have no ability to talk. So how could you have a conversation with a mosquito? But you could have a conversation with a donkey because the donkey does have the ability to talk. So this is, this is from the footnotes. Okay. So these type of things... You know, we put the clarify or or probe what the Rambam is saying and find where there are problems and try to resolve them. So really what we did was two things. We did a summary, sort of a, a condensation of what the Rambam says in, in normal everyday English. Try not to be uh, too hard, fairly, no, not to use very uh, fancy words, although you can't help it. And we also have the footnotes which enhance and clarify the text. This, this is fascinating, just a, a, a tip. And again, we urge all of our listeners and viewers a guide to the guide, the a guide for the perplexed. And it really, um, as it did for me, started to open up uh, the Rambam, Maimonides. And again, uh, right. thank you. I would also ask your listeners, I would, sorry? Also, I would also ask your listeners that if they do decide to get the book and they read it and they like yeah. it, they should post a positive comment on Amazon. Okay. If they don't like it, they should not post. Okay. I will, do, I will post my positive comment on Amazon. I, 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 would, I would appreciate that. Okay. Thank you very so much, Rabbi Rabbi. Appreciate it very Thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you. And you'll send me links that I've built. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.